I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Today, my guest is Wan Zihao. <laughs> Neil Wan. Neil. Yeah, I'm going to call you Neil. Okay. Who is the owner of a Little New York LNY Pizzeria. And he's also a DJ going by the name DJ Ronnie. And I think you're still a model, right? Well, you used to be a model. <laughs> I still model sometimes. You still model sometimes, right? A little bit. Yeah, so I put all that in, even though you didn't tell me to say those things. So anyway, let's just get right off to the topic here. And that is, why own a pizza restaurant? Why? You say it's a long story, so I want to yeah, hear it. it's a long story. Yeah. First of all, my listeners, Neil is from Taiwan. He's 100% Taiwanese. He's a tall guy at 187 centimeters, but he's a pizzeria owner. So... Because, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I think that it should be, um, you know, someone who owns a pizza here in Taiwan would be someone that like an expat, you know, an American yeah. or Italian guy, you know, who's here, you know, setting down in Taiwan and then open a pizza place. I can understand that. But you're Taiwanese and you open a pizza place. So, and you say you have a long story. Let's hear it. Yeah. Actually, when I just start, I had this place. Uh, before that, I never think about I'm going to do pizza. Never gonna think um, I will have a restaurant or anything else like this. But I also had a dream like uh, creating a system, like the business, what can run money. Like uh, that's my automatic goal. Right. You said you studied business management yes. in school, in, in, in college. School. In college, yeah. Um, you wanted to study that. I wanted to start a, a business I, uh, that can self-run and makes money. And okay. that's a business insight. But Sell what? Sell anything. Oh, anything. Sell anything. You and know. make money. Yeah, and make money. That, that was my uh, original goal. So are your parents also like, you know, business owners? They really know how to make money or something? No, no, no. They are very regular office worker okay just like a monday to friday like everyone else really yeah so i, I had this dream okay and, and i met a guy who very important for uh, the pizzeria yeah it was my he was my uh, business partner uh-huh i mean now at now we, oh, we, oh. we're not partner right now oh okay okay yeah, but we met five years ago mm-hmm. and he's the one who actually funny guy just like you say like uh, uh like expat Living in Taiwan and opened up a pizzeria. Yeah. And I had experience working in a restaurant before. So we met and I saw him open up a pizzeria and I kind of helped in the first. And then he asked me for a partnership because I'm kind of helping a lot for the small start company. 
And he found uh, I'm the trustworthy guy. Why pizza, though? I mean, you love pizza yourself. You must love it, right? I love it, for sure. I, <laughs> I really like pizza, especially I know how to make good pizza right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, you learned it from this guy? Uh, I, how I, to make pizza? I can make pizza myself before I met this guy. Okay, how did you learn how to make pizza yourself? Uh, I worked in an Italian restaurant before, in uh, Taipei. So, oh, in Taipei. Yeah, so I, I know a basic stuff of uh, pizza, just a flour and water and oil and salt. So um, what kind of pizza do you make? We make um, New York style pizza. What does it, that mean? It's um, large pie and pizza by the slice, uh, thin and crispy. Okay, thin and crispy, yeah. Thin and crispy. And, and so you have uh, one of those ovens, like the, what the do you call it? The brick, brick oven. Uh, yeah, brick oven. Unfortunately, we don't oh. have that brick oven. Oh, so you use the... We use an electronic. Right, electronic, mm. one of those. Oh, I think I see them. In, I don't know, on But TV, brick oven like is always the best. I know it's the, the best. best. The best. Couldn't you have built one yourself? I would like to in the future. When oh, in the future? Yeah, when we're getting better. Oh, oh, okay. Although I haven't tried the pizza yet. But I think um, from the look of it, because I've gone on your Facebook page, it looks really delicious. It Thank looks you. like the kind of pizza I like. You. If you can already you know, make such good pizza using electric ones. I couldn't imagine you making even better, more delicious pizza using the those brick ovens. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But, I mean, you can just build one yourself, right? No? It's not like that. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm thinking just that's possible. Yeah. Build one myself. Yeah. But I haven't really think about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a big work to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, or, I mean right now you're doing pretty well Thank at you. this restaurant, right? You've opened two shops right now, mm. two stores, two I restaurants. Think I, I think I have a lot of brave in doing this. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Why? Why do you say that? Because right now the situation is not like really positive. Oh, the, really? The whole the, the, the coronavirus stuff. Oh, So I just opened course. my second store about like three weeks. <gasps> just three weeks ago. Yeah, three weeks ago. <laughs> so this comes, comes with a lot of pressure. Yeah. But I always wanted it open. You know, I always wanted to improve myself. I want to show my learning your team. Uh-huh. I want to show them that I have a determination to build this pizza brand in Taipei. So uh-huh. I, I got to do it. How many people do, uh, do you have on staff? I work with uh, 13 people. 13? Like full-time people. And a few part-time, like three to five. Three to five part-time. That's talking a lot of salaries to give yeah, yeah, away. Yeah. It is, yes. You learned how to make pizza from someone who's Italian here in Taipei, right? So do you think it's easy to make good pizza? Um, if you know how to do it, you can say easy. But you're going to find the, the best uh, way to prove the dough and the water uh, ratio, you know, sugar ratio, what kind of yeast, what kind of temperature, humidity, and the temperature of the oven. That's the hard part. And you're going to maintain Every day, the same quality. Uh, that could be hard. So yeah. the good pizzeria, it's a well-management resort. And uh, they can provide every day the dough is super good. Mm. That's, uh, that's where the hard part is. Because mm. most uh, pizzeria, if you have a down business, sometimes you have a high business. So when you have a down business, the dough can last in the fridge for over three days, four days. And you're going to decide if you're going to use the dough or not. Because the quality is different every day. 
So if you go over three or four days after that, you have to throw, the, throw it away? You, you probably have to throw it away. Um, so you always make the dough ahead of time? You don't make it to order? Like when people oh, order, then you make the dough? We make the pizza. Make to order the pizza. But the dough, we're going to make at least like 48 hours ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought when you say make the pizza, that means from everything. From the dough uh, to... No, the dough, we're going to ferment at least 48 hours. <gasps> Fermentation is the, the most important part of a good pizza dough. Wow, I did not know That's that. That's kind of like science tech. You, you can have like, uh, if you just mix the flour and water right now and yeast for two hours, you bake it. There's no taste. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. The taste is come from, like, fermentation. It, from, oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. It's, uh, it's fun to know. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. Now, you decided on thin crust. Yes. Is it because you think Taiwanese people mostly like thin crust as opposed to, I don't know, thick crust? Hmm. Uh, there's a one thick crust. It's called Chicago dish. Oh, that's dish. very thick. Dip oh, dish. I know. Deep dish. So that's I had it before. Dish. I didn't yes. really like it. You didn't really like uh, it? It's kind of like, I can't finish the whole pie. Oh. And I feel like too much cheese. <laughs> I, I used to live in Boston. Okay. And they have, you know, Chicago deep, deep dish, dish pizza. Dip, yeah. yeah, it's okay, but it's very filling. Yes. Just one small slice, yes. you can just fill you up, you know. Yes, yes. Come to think of it now, I kind of miss it. <laughs> but... um. I'm not sure about, you know, this other, oh, all right, I'll just say it, Pizza Hut. Oh, Pizza Hut. Okay. Yeah. okay. Theirs is not not considered thin crust because yours is thinner than theirs, right? I think it's a now, little bit thinner. Yeah, right. a little bit. And so theirs, they kind of experiment with different fillings in the dough, remember? Mm. They put like sausages or they put like, you know, cheese. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, really yeah. not sure about those. The end, right? The end yeah, part. Yeah, the end part. Yes. Yeah, the end part of the yes, pizza, yes, the outside. Yes. Yeah, part of the pizza. Mm. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, how they try those kind of things. But mm. but um, I don't know. You think that Taiwanese people prefer um, burnt, crusty, um, you know, crunchy kind of things. That's why Taiwanese people mm. like deep fried stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we love we love yeah, fried chicken. Just yeah, deep like, fried uh, chicken yeah, nuggets, love, mm. uh, which is so bad for you. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so you never thought about this. But anyway, the Italian guy that you learned it from, mm. he only taught you how to make thin crust pizza. That's why. I, I learned both ways, like two ways. There's a, a, the one style of pizza is Rome pizza. Ro it's Ro a flat Rome Rome style Rome style it's like a cookie crust very okay. thin very thin there's okay. no round bread there's okay. only flat and I learned the other one is uh, handcraft pizza uh -huh. it's more like Neapolitan style okay it's like you got you get like fluffy outside uh -huh. and but it's still like thin and chewy yeah and I learned this two style okay and so what's your style for, for for little New York pizza. Little pizza New York, it will be thin and crispy. Thin and crispy. And the outside of my dough could be like a baguette. Baguette? It's kind of okay. the texture is a little bit firm, a little bit Which hard. means hard on the outside and kind hard. of... Like chewy. Chewy on the inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of like I'm my style. I'm getting hungry here. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that kind of European style bread. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So baguette. answer your question about why this kind of style and... And about Taiwanese, how they prefer, prefer. the dough, mm. it really depends. Because Taiwanese bread style, like a basu dusi, 85 degree, yeah. you know the bread? 
you you know the brand they sell in like low song mian bao all this kind of oh i know 85 degrees c actually sells coffee yeah. but they also yeah. sell cakes and bread yeah. in some places not all but in some yeah and and what about the breads oh so that, that's that's very taiwanese style bread yeah and it comes with a, a very similar to japanese style Okay. It's very soft. You you have like sweet thing inside yes. the bread, but yeah. European they don't eat this kind of bread. Right. So it's a different kind of feeling. Yeah. So it's very depends what you prefer. Right. But Taiwanese bread, the style I, I when I was in LA, I saw the eighty five degree C. Yeah. I was a long way outside. People go there by my my <laughs> my memories of bread like lo song mian bao. Oh, the, I was um, surprised. Like the the people really like this kind of stuff too. Really, that's interesting. So it's very depends right now. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not gonna be the guy who who stand for my style and always telling this is the best. Uh-huh. This, this is the best is only for me, yeah. not for everyone, not for him, not for right. Her. Okay, yeah. we need to clarify something here. Neil mentioned something about rou song mian bao. That's a uh, bread with uh, these My dried pork flake fillings. Yes, yes. Pork flakes. Yeah, shredded pork or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it's usually carries a sweet taste to it. Mm. Probably too sweet for it's me. Some mayo's on it. Yeah. Oh, gross. <laughs> Sorry, I don't like the Taiwanese kind of mayo. You know. Yeah, mayonnaise. Anyway, going back on your pizza. So, uh, what have you discovered as being the favorite flavor of pizza among Taiwanese people, among your Taiwanese customers? Wait a minute. Do you have mostly Taiwanese customers or expat customers? I would say it's like half uh, half. Um, could be half and half because okay. delivery information we don't know. Okay, what, who's, right. uh, what's uh, what's uh, Taiwanese or? Oh wait a minute! So you're saying that mostly you deliver rather than people eating in? We our original store uh, located Yanji. Yes. Uh, that store actually like seventy five percent to eighty percent is by deliver. Oh. So twenty percent to twenty five percent is staying. Oh, I see. Because we I have see. really good deliver uh, uh, sales. Yeah. So most uh, um, customer we don't know is Taiwanese or oh, foreigner. Okay. But staying from what I'm, what I see and experience, I think thirty percent uh, expat. Yeah. And seventy percent Taiwanese. Taiwanese. Okay. So anyway, so what do you think are the flavor uh, favorite flavors of your pizza among Taiwanese people? Yes. Um, or among your customers, period. Right now, I'm selling, try to like keep authentic enough, like uh, just pepperoni, sausage, oh, yeah. chorizo, jalapeno, uh-huh. cheese, different kind of stuff. I only got one s- uh, flavors. I made like kind of oriental pepper. Oriental pepper? Very like a Taiwanese local pepper. We use so- uh, uh, soy sauce to marinate oh. the pepper. Oh, really? To combine with the chorizo and garlic and tomatoes. That sounds interesting. So that's the only thing I try to twist uh, a local localized pe- uh, flavors. Well, that that's, sounds like something I would like to try. I think Taiwanese, they, they kind of like it. Really? It's good sell. Yeah. So actually you sell authentic, authentic. you know, pizza yeah. flavors, yeah. like the usuals. Yes. What about margarita? Margarita, yeah, we do have. Oh, that's like my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> my if you want to know if the pizza is good, just get the margarita. Margarita, pizza. right? Yeah, for sure. I know. Yes. It's plain, but it's good. Mm. Yeah. Depends it, on like. feels healthy. Yeah, it feels better. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have dogs kind of uh, pepperoni, pepperoni oil, I know, the spices. That's just too much, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, I wow. Love, I love margarita too. Next week, Neil Wan will start by talking about this other thing that he also likes to do. That's being a DJ. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I am Natalie So. Today we're going to hear from three different poets whose works were highlighted in the famous 300 Tang Poem Collection. The three poems today all describe a longing for a loved one or for home. Now the first poet is Du Sanyan. He is the grandfather of the very famous poet Du Fu. Now he himself is also a famous Chinese poet, calligrapher, and politician from the Tang Dynasty. Du's poem is called "On a Walk in the Early Spring," harmonizing a poem by my friend Lu, stationed at Changzhou. To wanderers can come. Every knew the shock of beauty, of white cloud and red cloud, dawning from the sea, of spring in the wild plum and river willow. I watch a yellow oriole dart in the warm air, and a green water plant reflected by the sun. Suddenly, an old song fills my heart with home, my eyes with tears. The next song is written by Sun Quanqi. Who was a poet and official in the Tang Dynasty? He worked with Song Ziwan, who will also be featured today, and they were known as the Sun Song Pair. They actually helped perfect a new style of poetry, of regulated verse, and this was one of the most important developments in the early Tang Dynasty poets. And many poets emulated them afterwards. This is one of his famous five-character regular verse poems called "Lines." Against the city of the Yellow Dragon, our troops were sent long years ago, and girls here watch the same melancholy moon that lights our Chinese warriors, and young wives dream a dream of spring. That last night, their heroic husbands, in a great attack, with flags and drums, captured the city of the Yellow Dragon. And this one by Song Ziwan. Is called inscribed on the wall of an inn, 
north of Dayu Mountain. They say that wild geese flying southward here turn back this very month. Shall my own southward journey ever be retraced? I wonder. The river is pausing at ebb tide, and the woods are thick with clinging mist. But tomorrow morning, over the mountain, dawn will be white with the plum trees of home. I hope you enjoyed those short but poignant poems from the Tang Dynasty about longing for home and longing for loved ones. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Listening to News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Today we will continue focusing on the COVID 19 outbreak, a novel coronavirus that has been spreading rapidly around the world. Since the outbreak began in Wuhan, China last December, Taiwan has reported 108 confirmed infections, including one fatality. So far, the highly contagious disease has killed more than 9,800 people and infected over 241,000, mostly in China. In Taiwan, people are being encouraged to wear surgical masks to reduce their chance of infection with COVID-19. However, for some people, Wearing a mask for extended periods can lead to skin problems. A young man in Kaohsiung takes off his surgical mask to reveal a skin infection. 
With many workers in the service sector now required to wear masks on the job, cases like his are on the rise. A dermatologist from Kaohsiung City's Cishan Hospital says that heat and humidity that accumulate under the mask irritate the skin. The doctor says he has seen a 20 to 30 percent jump in the number of facial skin infections since the COVID-19 outbreak began. He advises those who wear a mask to remove them for five to ten minutes every one to two hours in order to reduce irritation. The doctor also says that people can place soft tissue paper or gauze beneath their surgical mask to avoid skin chafing. Jake Chen, RTI News. Taiwan's health officials are winning hearts across the country for their efforts combating COVID-19. Some people have even created fan art in their honor. Appreciation for Taiwan's health officials has reached an all-time high. Their efforts fighting COVID-19 have turned them into local stars. Take, for example, Health Minister Chen Sizong. His success protecting Taiwan from COVID-19 have made him so popular that people want a miniaturized version of him on their desk. This cartoon pop-up of the health minister was created by local artist Tan Xu. Xu is sharing the files for free online so you can make your own mini Minister Chen. Tan says she's been watching the Central Epidemic Command Center's daily press conferences and thought it would be fun to make a caricature of Minister Chen. It only took her one afternoon to complete it, and people are absolutely loving it. Up next, Tan says she's planning to make a similar pop-up for digital minister Audrey Tong. Leslie Liao, RTI News. Food delivery services have begun refusing to deliver to hospitals due to fears about the spread of COVID-19. Taiwan's National Railway Company has stepped in to do the job instead, offering some of their fanned railway lunch sets to medical staff. A man disguised as a delivery worker delivers a huge bag of boxes to a Taipei hospital. Inside each box is a meal for one member of the hospital's medical staff. The man dressed as a delivery worker is actually Transportation Minister Lin Jialong. He's taken it upon himself to deliver lunch to doctors and nurses because he's heard that delivery companies are refusing to serve hospitals because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Lin said that medical staff should be encouraged for their hard work. The Taiwan Railways Administration, which is part of Lin's ministry, is offering its famous railway lunch set to medical workers at a 10% discount when they show their IDs. The National Railway Company says it is delivering to hospitals within three kilometers of Taipei Main Station with no delivery charge. Lin says this special delivery service will eventually be extended to six cities, including Taichung, Kaohsiung, and Hualien. Shirley Lin, RTI News. Many businesses have felt the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The tourism industry has been hit especially hard, and night markets are feeling the pinch too as crowds stay away. Kaohsiung's Liuhe Night Market is usually one of Taiwan's busiest. However, if you go there now, you'll find that there are no crowds, a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're brave enough to go there for some night market fare, you'll most likely be the first in line for whatever suits your fancy. It's great for customers, but it's also a business owner's worst nightmare. Business has been so slow that many vendors are vacating their stalls. The Liuhe Night Market Administration says that so far, 20 to 30 stalls have gone. Night markets usually draw large crowds which translate to higher rents for stall operators. However, with no crowds, there's no money to be made. And no money means no rent. Leslie Liao, RTI News.
This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound. Taiwan's health experts advise people to avoid food samples, buffets, and sharing dishes as the world faces the new coronavirus pandemic. Free food samples are common at stores and bakeries, and people can't seem to resist. Even though the food is given out in individual samples for free, it's still better to not take any. People just eat the food on the spot. This consumer says people talk when they shop and could infect the food with airborne particles. And what's wrong with this picture? Well, the dean of the National Taiwan University College of Public Health, San Changchen, says that bakeries often give you a plate of samples and people eat them without washing their hands. He said we should stop this practice. The director of the National Taiwan University Institute of Food Safety and Health, San Jiayang, says he strongly recommends avoiding buffets. That's because people share serving utensils when they get their food. This also happens at banquets. So people should switch to having individual portions served on small plates instead. Those are some expert tips on safer eating. Natalie So, RTI News. As of Thursday, anyone allowed to enter Taiwan must self-quarantine for 14 days. This prolonged isolation has caused discomfort for some, but quarantined residents of the southern city of Kaohsiung, at least, have access to professional help. The city of Kaohsiung wants its quarantined residents to know that they aren't alone. The city has set up a team of counselors to help those subject to COVID-19 quarantines get through what for many is an ordeal. The two-weeks quarantine period mandated for those coming into Taiwan and those who've come in contact with COVID-19 patients is the best way to keep the disease from spreading. But two weeks stuck indoors with no social contact can take its toll on mental health. 44% of those who responded to the counselor's phone calls in Kaohsiung say they feel stress. Others reported sleep loss, irritability, and even panic. The city is advising those in quarantine to take advantage of the new counseling service to better cope with their 14 days of isolation. Jay Chen, RTI News. And about 200 inmates at the prison in Jiayi are busy making cloth masks. That's because surgical masks are hard to get hold of these days. And some people think they can prolong the life of surgical masks by wearing a cloth mask over the top. About 200 inmates at a prison in Jiayi are busy making cloth masks. That's because surgical masks are hard to get hold of these days, and some people think they can prolong the life of surgical masks by wearing a cloth mask over the top. The Jiayi prison produces 500 to 800 cloth masks a day. They will be ready for sale in a week. Prison staff says all other production lines have been shut down to focus on just making masks. Medical experts, however, say that wearing just surgical masks is still the safest when visiting hospitals. But they say if you're low on surgical masks and want to prolong their lives, it is important to make sure to use a cloth mask that at least fits completely around the face for full protection. Shirley Lin, RTI News. And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist. For Radio Taiwan International, I'm Paula Chow. See you next week. Bye-bye.
The sound of the Amish tribe on Radio Taiwan International. So it's really important that women are part of the activities that we uh, carry out in different places. So, for instance, uh, one thing we've been looking at uh, with mung bean. Right now, it's traditionally harvested by hand, and that's a lot of work, and it's typically women that do that work. Hello, and welcome to this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. The World Vegetable Center is an international center for vegetable research and development in the world. The center was founded in 1971 and is headquartered in Shanhua, Tainan, Southern Taiwan. The head of communications and information of the World Vegetable Center, Ms. Maureen Mekosi, said there are two important reasons why the center was established in Taiwan. The climate in Taiwan, which is subtropical and tropical, so that scientists can do research on tropical crops suitable for the growth in Africa and South Asia. The second reason is Taiwanese government donated 116 hectares of land that used to be the sugar cane fields. The center has also released around 200 tomato varieties in various countries in the world, and they've also developed a new variety known as the golden tomatoes, which many in Africa would not dare to try in the very beginning, as in the traditional concept, tomatoes were supposed to be red in color. Ms. Maureen McCosey said after some promotion and cooking demonstrations, they were able to convince the local consumers. They have a project called Training of Trainers in order to help farmers around the world grow their vegetables. The center works with local agricultural officials, universities, and people who have contact with local farmers so that they can train the farmers with planting, harvesting, as well as marketing and distribution. Scientists and researchers have spent a lot of time developing a new breed of variety. The seed collection started as early as 1972, and about once a year, the World Vegetable Center sends samples of the seeds to Noah's Ark on Svalbard in Norway. Norway's Svalbard Seed Vault aims to protect the world's crops from natural disasters. The World Vegetable Center has the world's most complete collection of tomato and mung bean seeds, and samples of these crops are also dispatched to the vault in Svalbard in Norway. To find out more, we are joined today by Ms. Maureen Mekosi, the head of communications and information of Taiwan-based World Vegetable Center. 
You yes. mentioned on your website that uh, you conduct research and development that benefits women. So, can you tell us the idea behind this? Right. In many places where we work, women are the ones who are growing vegetables or doing the marketing of vegetables. So. We want to make sure that they are part of activities to learn about new production methods, things that would make their life a little easier, uh, different ways of processing or even cooking vegetables. Uh, we know that women, um, if they have access to vegetables, it's more likely their family will have access too, and that the whole family diet, as a result, will be more, more nutritious. So it's really important that women are part of the activities that we uh, carry out in different places. So, for instance, uh, one thing we've been looking at uh, with mung bean, right now it's traditionally harvested by hand, and that's a lot of work, and it's typically women that do that work. So we have been looking at mechanizing um, mung bean harvesting with some very simple tools that can be adapted uh, for this purpose, but we also have to study what the effect will be if that mechanization is introduced on the lives of the women who typically did the harvesting. Will they lose income? Will they lose opportunities for work or status in their communities, or will they be able to take that time that they have and uh, after they've been freed from having to harvest by hand and do something something else and something more important with that time. So we always have to be mindful of those kinds of actions and how they will affect women because they're very important to uh, vegetables around the world. Yes, indeed, especially um, women in, for example, in Africa or in South Asia, you move them from harvesting to doing this work. But who trains these women? Uh, Often they are part of uh, community groups, and so we will, as I mentioned before about the training of trainers, we will train different trainers who will then go on and work with community groups, with women's groups, uh, to provide them with the information and the skills that they're, they need to, to carry out some of these activities. So this kind of uh, working at, at different levels, uh, training of trainers, uh, training of uh, scientists, young scientists to do research, um, and also uh, working with uh, people who are doing uh, food preparation or with small companies that are preparing uh, processing food. All these things are all part of that value chain, and we're uh, working at a lot of different levels to ensure that there are opportunities for many people to join in. I was wondering, you said that the World Vegetable Center actually is quite small in a way because it only has about 400 uh, people all over the world. And are these 400 people including researchers and also trainers who provide training? Yes, Yes, but I would say that's the smaller number of people, <laughs> yeah. So it's always, all of our work, uh, we need partners. Partners are so important to us because we can't really do our work unless we have partners. And they, they're all over. There are other universities, other research institutes. Uh, there might be government agencies and, and even local governments, local institutions. We're working with people at all different kinds of levels 
because this is a very complex, getting food to our table is a very complex activity. Indeed, indeed. And uh, uh, also, I'm sure that you you also work with uh, local NGOs um, so they can help with the training and with the distribution, with yes, the training. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They, we have many different NGOs that we work with all around the world, and they are such important partners for us because they have the very close connections to people on the ground, the people who really need these improved varieties or improved methods for growing vegetables. So they're an important conduit for us to reach those people. You're listening to Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today I'm speaking with the head of communications and information of the World Vegetable Center, Ms. Maureen Makosi. Earlier, you mentioned about the gene bank in Korea, but now tell us about the Noah's Ark on Svalbard <laughs> in Norway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, our director general, Marco Wopperis, he's up there right now in Svalbard, uh, Norway, and he's bringing a deposit of our seed to be stored in the Svalbard uh, Global Seed Vault. And that seed vault, the purpose of that vault is simply for disasters. If a disaster occurs somewhere, if there was to be a major flood or typhoon here in Taiwan that damaged our gene bank, we would know that our seed would be safe up in the seed vault in Norway. We could go retrieve that seed and start our collection over again. So that's the main purpose of that gene bank, uh, what you call the Noah's Ark. Uh, And we have uh, every year we send seed, uh, part of our collection uh, goes up to that gene bank. I believe we have about about 28% or so of our collection is up there so far, and every year we send more. So it's a great facility to have, and we're very grateful to the Crop Trust and NordGen. Those are the organizations that operate the seed vault. Uh, we're happy to have access to it. So every country will provide their seeds to uh, Noah's Ark? Um, I, I don't know that every country does, but many do. And many institutions that do uh, crop research uh, will also have seed up there as well. So. And Maureen, a little bit about yourself. How did you end up working for the World Vegetable <laughs> Center? Well, I've been here a little over 10 years. And uh, I always had a very strong interest. You must like your work. Yes, (laughs) I do. And it's a great place to work. And Taiwan is a wonderful place to live. Um, I came here from Singapore where I was running my own business, and uh, but I'd always had an interest in agriculture and development, and I got a master's degree in that field, and the job opened up here, and here I am 10 years later. So, mm-hmm. How long, so you said you have worked here for more than 10 years. What is your routine like? <laughs> well, we're very, uh, I'm very lucky because I live on our campus, which is a beautiful place. It's very green. It's a big farm. And uh, so it takes me all of maybe a minute and a half to walk to my office. So that's my daily commute, which is quite nice. Um, and I must say that every day is very different here on this job. I never really know what's going to happen. The minute I walk in the door, it might be talking to reporters uh, locally or internationally. 
Uh, we have visitors that come from many different countries, and I meet them, uh, discuss with them what their needs are, uh, talk to them about our operations. Uh, we have a large demonstration garden here, and I work closely with the people who tend that um, so we can show people the kinds of uh, crops that we're producing, why they're important. Every day is different. So it's kind of it's an exciting job, and I quite like it. And you have to also keep yourself updated with the development of the new breed as well. Oh, absolutely. And our breeders are are really uh, great. They're so excited about their work. I think that's one thing you find um, in this kind of field. Uh, people are very passionate about their work because they know it really does make a difference in people's lives. And so they really are excited about their new crops and the work that they're doing. We have a breeder in Thailand. He's a pumpkin breeder, cucurbit breeder, and he is quite an expert. Uh, people from many countries consult him on his work, and he can. It's amazing how much he can talk about pumpkins. <laughs> he really, he's very, very passionate about it. So, whatever so. vegetables that you eat right now, you have to think. That someone behind this has yep, made a yes. lot of contribution. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because uh, the vegetables that we typically find at the market, they didn't just uh, grow that way in nature. They've uh -huh. been developed over a long period of time by people, because that's what we've been looking for. And what are they, some they, of the challenges the World Vegetable Center face today? Well, we're always uh, challenged by funding. That's always a big one. Um, you know, trying to keep going as uh, the interests of our donors change, but also as uh, technology changes and finding ways that we can use technology to um, support small-scale farmers. Um, it's happening very rapidly. Uh, you have new opportunities for farmers, for instance, to use mobile phones to get information, to uh, predict the weather, to learn about the soils in their fields. There are so many things that small-scale farmers can use, but trying to make sure that they reach people in places like India and Africa is is difficult, and that's where it's most needed. So. Those are the kinds of things we're working on you know, every day. Mm -hmm. yeah. What are your future objectives? Our future is to continue encouraging people to grow more vegetables, to grow them safely, and eat more vegetables. That's what we're all about, and that is not going to change. <laughs> But to encourage people to eat more vegetables, I think that's a very challenging work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. But they're so good, yeah. You know, it's uh, and you just have to know how to prepare them and be willing to try new things because actually, you know, we depend on about fifteen or so staple crops. But in fact, there are thousands, thousands of plants that we can eat and benefit from and actually enjoy. So there are lots of opportunities for people to expand their diets, try new things, try new vegetables. So when you eat vegetables, you have to think about all the scientists 
who have made this possible for vegetables <laughs> that you put the, on your all table. All the scientists, all the farmers. Cause yes. They're the ones who bring it to the table. Yes. Right. And uh, we've been joined on the phone today by Ms. Maureen McCausey, the head of communications and information of the World Vegetable Center in Taiwan. And that wraps up this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Take goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.